You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me wherever you might be, on a bus, in the car, on a plane, going for a walk. It's great to have your company. My name's David Frizzell and this episode is all about getting into the head of those we're trying to persuade and influence. You don't often hear someone describe themselves as an advisor, or even less so, an influencer. But in truth, that's what we all are, working to persuade the people around us that our ideas are worth listening to and acting on. My guest is author and advisor extraordinaire, Brian Whitefield. Brian has designed a series of beautifully simple concepts and models that help us organize our thoughts develop our awareness, and focus our communication so we can maximize the impact we have on the people around us. Being a trusted advisor, a person whose insights are valued and acted upon, is an incredible professional position to be in. And Brian is going to help you get there. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brian Whitefield. Brian Whitefield, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, Brian. Looking forward to the chat. Now, you have written a brand new book about getting into the minds of the people we advise and trying to influence. What a wonderful concept, that that idea of getting into the minds of those people who are important to us professionally. We'll get into that. I can't wait to talk through that and talk about the models and the concepts that you've developed for your book. But before we get to that, I want to get to the basics of advising and influencing, because even those words in themselves are really interesting ones. From the work that you do, Brian, what type of people would readily identify themselves as a persuader or an influencer or an advisor? Who are those people? Well, most definitely from an advisor point of view, the support functions in organizations or shared services people. Yep. They are there to do a job. They have, you know, traditionally been had a background, you know, in their degree if it's in HR or if it's in finance or IT. And then there are other ones like risk compliance and, and procurement, which well they haven't necessarily done a degree, but they've sort of migrated there. And they do see it as their job to advise the business to help them get the best result possible for both them and the business. So they are the ones who would say themselves, yeah, I'm an advisor. Now, in terms of an influencer or a persuader, pretty much anyone who's worked in the, let's call it the back office, knows how hard it is to get the attention of the front office. The front office is very busy. Yeah. I mean, as we all are. But yeah. but they are trying to get on with what they see as the business. Yeah, that's and right. And all the different advisors from HR, risk compliance, procurement records, keeping I could go on, wanting a piece of their time. And, yeah. uh, and they've got and work to do. That's right. So they hold up the hand yeah, as best they can, and these advisors find themselves talking to the hand. So it's most definitely about, you know, they know they need to influence and influence strongly. Because where I was getting there, and you, you almost got there without me, was when I asked who identifies as an advisor or an influencer, sure, there are people who would see themselves that way and understand that that's a big part of their role. But I'm imagining from the work that you do, a whole lot more people should put themselves into that category who do. 
a whole lot more people are advisors, they are influencers, but they don't necessarily see themselves that way. I'm guessing when a lot of people read your book or read the blurb, at least about what your book is getting at, they would say, that all sounds really great, Brian, but I'm not an advisor or an influencer, but plenty of them would be. Oh, absolutely. One of the things I raise in the book is I talk about what an organization actually is. An organization is just a bunch of people who come together to make decisions to act or not act to fulfill a purpose. That's everyone in the organization is making yep. a decision to fulfill the purpose, to act or not act. And even if you're the CEO, you, you've got to influence someone. People, you can Yes, you can use your influence downwards and outwards, but that's not necessarily the best tactic when it comes to influencing. And no matter who you are as CEO, you're always, you've always got a boss. Could be your family, Absolutely. could be your board. There's people you need to influence. So every one of us is an advisor. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. All right. Well, let's let's get to it because your book is just chocked full of of models. It, it's great tips and ideas, all based around a number of really solid models. Things like the Pathfinder model, which will be all new language to our listeners if they haven't read your book, but we'll get to them. The Pathfinder model, the MCI decision model, push and pull strategies, which is just one of those concepts that's so lovely and simple, but so meaningful. I really enjoyed reading about those. And the persuasion pyramid just thrown into boot. Look, Brian, when you're working with clients, how do you begin to break down this art, this intelligence of getting into the minds of those we're trying to influence? And how do you use those models you've created to do that? Well, the first thing I do is help them to understand some of their own behaviors when they are trying to influence. And one of the models in the book is about where you are in terms of being a trusted advisor to your internal stakeholders or to yep. any stakeholder. Yep. Yep. Talking about the more broad concept of we're all advisors. And at the very bottom of the rung are, are, are tyrants, people who just use their power to get things done and they're abrupt, rude and all the rest. And what I say to people like that, we all can get the job done if we've got the power, yep. except people will avoid us at all costs. Yep. Yeah, that's whereas, right. whereas if you're seen as an expert, then people will come to you when they have to. But what you really want is to be an accepted authority on your topic and get to the point where they're a trusted advisor and you're one of the first people they pick up the phone to. So by helping them go through that process, they start to think about, well, how good an advisor have they been? And for those who <clears throat> say to themselves, okay, well, I could be better, that's how I usually get them interested in the first place in the Pathfinder model and the other models that I, I take them through. And the Even that, sorry, Brian, sorry, even that might be a shocking conversation for some people. When you break it down in that way, People have got this idea of themselves as someone who can get stuff done, someone who can influence. But when you put, lay that out in front of them, say, hey, you, are you a tyrant, an expert, or an authority? Even that, it might be a little bit confronting because if you haven't thought one layer deeper than the word advisor to think about how it is that you get the job of advising or persuading done, that might be a, a slap in the face to someone who realizes that they are indeed a tyrant what sort of conversations have you had about that? Do you do you have memories of people having that ugly realization that hey, I might be I might be effective, but I go about it in a, a in a tyrant kind of a way? That there's no doubt that's been confronting for some people. And the way yeah. I like to introduce it <laughs> is, I refer to people in other industries with other titles, and I say, oh, you yeah. know what, those people feel like they're you know they're working for. You know, the big name companies or the big name government agencies around town. 
and they're the, they've got that title. And I say to them, are you actually the first person the boss calls or the second person the boss yeah. calls when they want to have this decision considered? Or are they throwing the decision over the fence to you and saying, get your bit of it done? And that's the right. difference between being- Is, is that you know, a hallmark of a tyrant, is it? More the expert is having that stuff thrown over the right. over the hill. So okay. many people will, yeah. will, will acknowledge. In fact, most people I feel in in um, advisor land uh, don't use their authority. Well, they don't have much authority, so they can't be tyrants that much. You'll find that yeah. more on the yeah. <laughs> the CEO senior leader front where they do have the authority and 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 what they've done is missed out on the opportunity to, to get you know gain lasting trust and lasting buy into what they they're trying to achieve. But on the advisor front, they tend to know that they don't have the authority, so they work on other things. And I just find that if you talk about someone else, not them, they can self-select whether they are, yeah. in fact, being the first to be phoned by the boss or, in fact, it's just being thrown over the fence for them to implement. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. Lots of people who find themselves in that role as an advisor are in exactly the position you just described, where often they're outside of an organization as a consultant or, or something like that, or they're inside the organization, but they're an expert, so they don't have that position on the hierarchy. So they don't have that positional power or that authority that you talk about. So as you say, they, they've got to work on on one of those others being an expert or, or being the authority and leading to being a trusted advisor. This little piece actually reminds me of that old old model from 1959. I happen to remember French and Raven's Five Forms of Power. Back in the day, they, they decided that all leaders have to have some type of power and Power is not a bad word. It's not a dirty word. But to be aware where we draw that power from is really important. And French and Raven have identified five forms of power, which really still hold true. That idea that you you either have positional power or you have expert power or, heaven forbid, coercive or reward power. And that's four of them. And you can you can just picture those four different types of power being used. The fifth type of power is is a really interesting one. They call it referent power. That's people who have a little bit of charisma, something about their personality that draws people to them. So like I said, your model here really aligns very nicely with French and Raven's model way back from 1959. And when I talk about five forms of power, when I'm encouraging leaders to think about where they draw their power, and let's be honest, a lot of leaders lean a bit too heavily on the org chart because it's so convenient. That's positional power. And hey, look, there's nothing wrong with positional power, but we have to use it with a mix of different types of power. Sometimes that's expert power. Sometimes that's referent power, having an ability to form wonderful relationships. But uh, heaven forbid that we rely too much on positional or reward or coercive power. When I talk to people, I always get them to think back to school. You can always picture a teacher from our, our time at school, even, even if it does feel like 100 years ago, there was always a teacher that reward power. Hey, kids, if you get your work done, we'll go out and have a game after lunch. That's classic reward power. Or there's the coercive power that says, if you don't get your work done, you're not going out to lunch. Classic coercive power. Then there's expert power. 
that person who is just such a thorough expert of their subject matter. They don't have to do any classroom management. They don't have to do any lesson preparation. They're just, they just have that expert kind of PhD level stuff. And then there's positional power, that teacher who says, you will do it because I'm the teacher and I say, but then there's that fifth power. And we can all think of teachers like this, that teacher that had referent power. The kids, for some reason, just were drawn to this teacher. They followed him around in the playground. Everyone loved that teacher. So as I say, you've just reminded me of that. I just want a little spiel there, but it's really important for people, whether it's as an advisor or as an as a leader, which is an advisor and a persuader and an influencer and all those things, it's really important that we understand where we get our power. Now, Brian, I cut you off earlier. You were about to lead what you were talking about into your wonderful Pathfinder model. Tell us more about that. Well, I call it the Pathfinder model because we all up, all put up barriers to bad advice. So I'm sure that you would trust your mother, but would, you wouldn't necessarily oh, trust listen. your mother's advice <laughs> on the internet. No, I love that bit <laughs> in your book. That was great. That's so, a point so well made, mate. I, I imagine everyone who read that can completely relate. That was a, a very well made point. Yeah. So we all put up barriers to uh, to bad advice. You know, we we don't want to be led astray. In fact, as you were talking about French and Ravens. I was thinking about Robert Caldini and his Six Principles Persuasion. His book's actually called Influence the Psychology of – how's it go? Uh, yeah, Influence the, the Psychology of Persuasion. And, uh, and in it, he talks about his six principles. But what caught me when I originally started reading the book was he was talking about compliance officers. And I picked it up. I thought, this guy's written a book about compliance people in organizations, and he's – Famous from like the 1980s? <laughs> Jesus, it was easy I, to get famous back then, wasn't it? And then as I read on, I realized what he was talking about was salespeople, the people that get you to comply. Yeah. And so they are, for example, the great person who takes you through and then leads you up to a certain point and says, the deal is off after 5 p.m. today. The sale <laughs> is there until 5 <laughs> p.m. today. Yes. And he talks about that being using scarcity. scarcity. So it is a form of coercion for, yeah. for, for an example. So we know these compliance officers, these salespeople are out there trying to do us over. And yeah. so we have our barriers. We don't want bad advice. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be ripped off. Yeah. We don't want to be made a fool of. So because of that, we need to get past their barriers. And that's why it's called the Pathfinder model. And the Pathfinder model, in its essence, is I love it because it's four simple things you can use before you go into a meeting, if you haven't quite prepared, if you can catch yourself and say, cripes, I didn't prepare for this properly. Yeah. You say to yourself, okay, stand in their shoes. So you stand in their shoes to understand what they're thinking right now. Then paint them a picture, tell them a story, and ultimately make them believe through your own credibility. Yeah. Now, that last one I'll, I'll deal with in a sec. But the stand in their shoes, if you don't understand them and what they're what's turning them on and what's turning them off and what their challenges are and all those things, how can you help them uh, properly? And then paint a picture and and tell a story. A, a absolutely classic influencing, modern influencing skills. We know yeah. so much about how the brain works now. And we know that people buy on emotion and people are buying a bit of advice, if you know what I mean. And so a combination of a little bit of storytelling and or good analogies and, and, a, and a good picture, and there's lots of ways of doing a picture, you get your point across way better than if you just use your words sitting in a conversation. Now, but having said that, in that conversation, how you establish and build your credibility is the last and, and the golden moment 
when they believe and they take your advice. Look, there's there's so much to this, and I, I want to go back and, and talk through each of them because it's so important to to the message that you're sending. Stand in their shoes, paint them a picture, and that that means literally draw them a diagram, tell them a story, and and make them believe. Let's go to stand in their shoes. Quite obviously, we're we're getting to empathy there. Uh, it, it harks back. It, it it's a nod to the concept of walk a mile in someone's shoes. You want to understand. In order to give them the right advice, well-considered advice, you want to understand what is troubling them right now. If I go into a meeting and I have no background information on this, I have no insight, what are the steps that I can take in a meeting to be able to stand in their shoes? What can I do? So my view is you you ask them some questions without sounding like you're asking them what their problems are. Because any senior person, if you go in there and say, oh, so tell me what your problems are, they'll throw something at you while yeah. they're throwing you out the door. Yeah. So you've got to have done your homework enough or have enough awareness of their situation to be able to ask leading questions that confirm your thoughts. So it's things like you state, you, you know, my experience of people in your situation or my experience of people with this current situation happening, these three things happen. You know, people rebuild, people shut down, people, whatever they are, yeah. and gives them an opportunity to nod or, you know, put a quizzical look on their face. Yeah. And depending on which way that goes, that's how you more firmly stand in their shoes. But even if so they do put a-, a quizzical look on their face, they're probably going to give you a bit more information there anyway and say, no, that's not quite happening to us, but this is happening instead, and you're winning there anyway. That's right, because you're sort of like gone one, two, three questions, and the quizzical has come up after the first one, and they haven't had a chance to to answer necessarily, because sometimes we speak a little bit too quickly. But yes, you're right. If you've done it politely and and empathetically, they'll wait their turn, and they'll not maybe not correct us so much, but but share with us what's really going on. And that's when when you're in that perfect position to be in their shoes. You know, and the second one, you're standing in the shoes is the first. The second is paint them a picture. And and I related to you so strongly in your book when you said that I didn't think I could draw and you've got over that hump <laughs> and now you've realized the power of getting up on the whiteboard and drawing a diagram. I went through exactly the same. When I first began as a consultant, Brian, I, I worked for a company called 5D Consulting and the managing director of 5D Consulting, Daniel Yule, He's a great strategic consultant, but he's equally gifted as an artist on the whiteboard. And it was actually a little bit overwhelming to see this guy and he would talk and write on the whiteboard like a graphic designer. So that's kind of put me back a couple of steps thinking, well, I can never do that because I don't look like a graphic designer when I write. It looks more like a chicken has a pen tied to its leg and it's been running all over the whiteboard. So it took me ages to get over that hurdle of not having to be the prettiest writer on a board or on a piece of paper. And I've I've dived into it a few years ago now, and now I'm addicted to it. You can't get me off a whiteboard or away from a piece <laughs> of paper, because despite how ugly my, my drawings or my diagrams are, exactly what you described happens. I draw something as we've talked and I, as I've given my advice or asked my questions, and the whole group will be standing around pointing at this terrible chicken scratching of mine as if it has this enormous significant meaning, which is exactly the experience you described. Yes. And I hope you picked up on the um, the colored pen bit. So uh, when I help people with um, uh, uh, learning these skills, one of the things I give them is a, is a four colored pen. 
yes, it happens to have my branding on it, ulterior motive. <laughs> but I explained to them that the four colours help. And that's how I one of the techniques to get past my terrible drawing. And like I've been encouraged to draw more neatly and draw slower and all those things. Yeah. But I've yeah. I've just gone to the the chicken scratch. Yes, yeah. I've I've picked up a couple of techniques about drawing little figures, but absolutely I'm just the chicken scratch and and be be passionate as you're doing it and, and with the words. But a hundred percent the most rewarding thing is when you see them point to the page or yes. when they point as to it, the page. Yeah. And they yeah. always, inevitably, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, and sometimes because, they grab the piece of paper, grab the pen, and they draw an alternate model that they've been working on, yeah. or, they, or they knew from 1950s. <laughs> yeah, 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 which is, which is just as good. Hey, while we're on it, what are, the, what are those tips for people who are listening going, well, that's me, I'm a terrible drawer, but I've got so much to say. What are your tips to, to getting on the whiteboard or, or picking up that pen and starting to draw a model to represent the conversation you're having? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll attribute this one to um, business coach of mine, Matt Church, and he taught me there are only four things you need to draw a model, a line, a triangle, a circle, and a square. Yeah. yeah. Can you draw those? <laughs> <laughs> That's it, eh? Hey? Uh, yep. And from there, you can make any model you like. Now, you know, we're not the storyboard writers, guys. You know, like, yeah. that's not me. I can't do the storyboard. But I can unpack a complex argument into a simple model, such as a Venn diagram or a contrast frame or what is called in the industry, I guess, as a, as a judgmental quadrant model. You know, the mm-hmm. old, you know, yeah. four, which four fan, sectors. Which have got a bad rap because they're absolutely fantastic and they can describe so many things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 all you need. And, and with a few colors and, and, of course, some choice words that go on yeah. your model. They come to life because what 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 we're not saying here, which is the most important thing, is that if you've got something worthwhile saying, if you've got something that has some insight, some relevance, then that's when you can not be the best artist in the world and still produce something that's valuable. You can be the best artist in the world and have nothing quality to contribute, and your drawing, although pretty it might be, is not going to have people standing around pointing at it. So that's the obvious thing that we didn't say up here. You've got to have that quality contribution to make. Absolutely. The, the, one of my favorite models is my MCI decision model. Now, okay, favorite, yeah, it's mine. It's one of the reasons it's favorite. But it's because of my in- investigation, my research into decision making before I came up with it. And when I, when I take people and I introduce the model, what I usually do is I introduce other decision models before I get there. And I talk about the rational decision-making model, and it's just this process of, you know, I, I can't even think of it right now, but it's everything like write down your decision criteria, weight your criteria, evaluate, you know, make a decision. It's like, yeah, whatever. And then you move on to the ethical decision, you know, this model pops up with about five different directions you can move. And then I say, well, maybe we can have talk to the, um, the process um, IT people to help us. And then you put up this really, really complicated decision model. And then I put up mine, and I say to them, I just found all of this so unhelpful and that when people talk about decision-making and all the reasons that decision-making go wrong, it was just you could write it down on a piece of paper towel, on a roll of paper towel that would go from, well, in Sydney talk, um, <laughs> central to circular key. Yeah. And there's all these reasons for going wrong. And so I needed something simple to help people, and that's where I came up with the MCI model. And I'm still to this day part shamed but part incredibly happy that I haven't come up with a 
better name for it than the MCI model because it makes it so easy to remember what it's about, which is well, motivation. That's exactly right. <laughs> motivation, clarification, and implementation. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. So can we let, let's get to that in a minute. I just want to finish off the Pathfinder model. I love the MCI model, and that's a great link. I want you in a minute to help us understand how the two fit together. So we're, we're, sure. we're talking through the Pathfinder model. It's about standing in their shoes. So this is when you go in a meeting and you're beginning the process of of trying to influence a situation, trying to add value to a situation as a as a trusted advisor. You stand in their shoes, you paint them a picture, and then the third and the fourth are tell them a story and make them believe. What do those two steps look like? Okay, so telling the story. Um, let let me let me premise this. I give people an out. If you are not really experienced with the people that you're you're meeting with, and you're not really knowledgeable about the topic, I can understand why you're a bit hesitant to start with a story or to tell a you know, significant emotional story. Yeah, it's bold, <laughs> so, isn't it? It is. And so there is. it's perfectly okay to talk about a builder or talk about a baker and just use a quite a detailed analogy, almost like a story. So that's, a, that's the fallback for if you're getting into storytelling in an advisor role and you're not ready to, you know, bring on the impassioned charge. However, the sooner you get the confidence and the experience in telling real stories, the sooner you'll have the, the massive impact because of the emotion that a story brings. Absolutely. So one of the things I do, and I, and I learned this from a, a professional storyteller named Patricia McMillan, and she, what she did is she made us in, the, in a, a training program went on to bring an object and we all had to tell a story about the object, and it was dead easy. Everyone could yeah. tell a story about this object because the object meant something to them. Yeah. And what, and what I say to people that I teach storytelling to is what, when I ask them the question, what was happening when you were telling your story? And inevitably, it comes around to the, the spark in the people's eyes that they saw. Yeah. People were so engaged and into what you were saying. And the stories I've heard, boy, <laughs> they've been so emotional, funny, outstandingly unusual or unexpected or completely almost sounding impossible, but they did happen. You know, there's, they were one in a billion, I guess. Uh, Look, there, I, I have lost count of the number of times I've been in some type of session when someone starts telling a story. I look around and people literally shift forward in their chair. They lean forward. They want to hear how this is ending, especially if the story has been being told in an environment where it's been very facts and figures or very report-based or very very talky talk, that this the someone who is brave enough to tell a story just captures the audience immediately. Everyone wants to know how the story ends. I've done a couple of podcasts just on storytelling, actually. I can't remember what numbers they are, but I remember Sean Callahan very early in my time. It would be in the teens or in the 20s of this podcast, fabulous storyteller himself. And he really did a great job of breaking down the art of storytelling for us and why it's just so important. It takes a bit of guts though. As a facilitator, I'm very comfortable telling stories now, but I do remember a time when I kind of felt as though it was a bit indulgent for me to tell a story about something that I'd experienced or I'd seen or I'd heard somewhere else. And I found myself, and this is a bit of a trap for young players, I think, 
I found myself acknowledging, yep, the story's right to tell now, but then I'd rush the story because I kind of felt uncomfortable doing it. So now over the years, I've learned to really enjoy the process of storytelling and read the audience and and sense how much they're into the process of this and the narrative and where it's heading and play to that a little bit. But we all know the power of stories and we all know it because we've been in the audience when we've heard terrific ones. So that's great. That's great. Tell them a story. That came after painting them a picture and stand in their shoes. How do we make someone believe? How do we finish this off, Brian? To finish this off, the make them believe part is through credible conversations. That's the truth of it. When you sit down there and you've worked through this process of standing in their shoes, telling them a story, you're well on your way to making them believe. But finally, you have to have a certain amount of street cred with them. And so I find that the whole thing boils down to, in terms of credibility, three things. Your trustworthiness, your trustworthiness, your adaptability, and the level of expertise they consider you to have. So whenever I facilitate this discussion about credibility and I ask what makes people credible, all these words pop up, very similar ones, knowledge, information, presence, expertise, all these things. And I boil them down to these three things because trustworthy – at the end of the day, it comes back to what I was saying about trusting your mum. You know, do you trust? Will this person trust you about this decision? Well, yeah. first of all, they need to know your, your expertise before they're going to even consider it. Mm. Then the trust is the is the more the human side of the trust equation, which is have you been true to your word? Have you been willing to switch? but only after consideration rather than switch because of the political winds moved and you've just decided to change teams. So all those typical things that we learned as kids about trust in the playground. Right trust through is, to, yeah. Yeah. But the adaptability one, I maybe I'm a bit different, but this is my view on it. Someone who works for one of the, you know, the global leading consulting firms who wears a, a magnificent suit, magnificent tie, and presents well to boards. That's fine. That's perfect. I'm sure that person oods a lot of credibility. Yeah. Can that person walk outside the room and talk to other people on the floor? In fact, go down onto the factory floor and exude the same level of credibility. Yeah. And so adaptability for me is the adaptability to change your change the conversation to suit. Yes. Yes. And, Not be one trick pony. Exactly, exactly. As well as not to come with all the answers. So it's to be adaptable in terms of, hey, I've got some options for you. It's interesting. I can't remember if it's in the book, but one of my favorite sayings about data and models is not saying it's some research that was done where where they identified that if you want someone to believe your black box model, don't tell them the numbers five, tell them the numbers between three and seven. And they'll be much more ready to choose a number around about five and be happy with their decision than if you told them the number was five. Right. What's the psychology behind that? Well, it's- Isn't it's, the power of choice? Power of choice, yeah. yeah. I mean, people don't believe the black box. They want to believe it, but they, they're worried about it. And it seems so simple when you tell them the number's five. Whereas you sell them, the model says, you know, the- um, you know, standard deviation or whatever language you probably shouldn't use, uh, but it should be that you, you if you choose within this range, you'll be comfortable. You'll get a comfortable result. And it is the power of choice. Okay, well, I'll choose five. Seems about the so middle. We, 
We make them believe after we've stood in their shoes, painted them a picture, told them a story. We've made them believe because we have credibility. They trust us. We've proven that we're adaptable and that we have an expertise in in the area that's appropriate. I love it. I, I love the simplicity of it. I, I like it's actually quite dynamic within those four spaces that are that are very nicely connected. Tell us then about your MCI decision model, the, the thing that you described very briefly before, the motivation, clarification, and implementation. How does that fit? Where, where does that come up against the Pathfinder model? What's the relationship? Yeah, so the MCI models in the stand in their shoes component of the Pathfinder model, essentially our influencing is influencing someone's decision. That's what it is. People in organizations are there to make decisions, act or not act. So yeah. we need to influence a person's decision. To influence a person's decision, it would be good to think about their decision-making processes and their and their elements to their processes. And as I was saying earlier, we had all these really complex ideas about why decisions go wrong, and I needed something simple. And so the MCI model stands for motivation, clarification, implementation, and is designed because of our tendency to go, A, straight to implementation. Mm. Great idea, David. Let's get that job done. Yeah. Let's not question the idea any further. Let's just dive in. <laughs> yeah, because we're all busy and it's fast. It sounded right. So let's do yeah. it. We don't stop long enough and clarify what David's idea was. Did David really articulate it clearly to us? Did we you know, ask some clarifying questions just to make sure we're on the same page? And did we stop and think about the pros and cons of it? What other things might flow from this that are unintended? Mm. Mm. Well, what, but, is it also about what the alternative? What are we giving up in order to do David's idea? Absolutely. I mean, what, maybe there's a completely different way of doing this mm, mm. that we haven't even considered, which would be way easier or way better outcome, but we're doing this one. So, that yeah, I, I talk about turning 90 degrees. But the other thing that we tend not to do, and certainly we don't do well enough, is actually say, what's the motivation behind this? Are we, in fact, answering the right question? And what happens is people go down this path of this decision that someone's making and people know that something's not right, but they can't put their finger on it. And if they go back to the, to the drivers behind it, they'll soon find that they're actually answering the wrong question. Yeah. So yeah. one of the examples I was just using in a conversation with someone the other day, I was helping some people talk about sales and service. And the sales people were complaining that the service people wouldn't toe the line and, and do what needed to be done and at the end of the day, what it was, the actual question that should have been asked is why are sales and service not aligned? Not what does service have to do differently? Mm, <laughs> why yeah. are they not aligned? Yeah. And of course, when they sat down and thought about it and they saw that they were, they were misaligned because Asking of- Asking the wrong question. <laughs> differing expectations. When the salespeople calculated the, the, the one, this particular example, was 25% of their gross profit <laughs> they were missing out on. Because of this misalignment that could be just solved by saying, right, so we'll just ease back on what we promised the client here and up it there, and you can deliver more of that and less. Yes. Okay. Well, let's just do it. Yeah. So, so that's yeah, so. the, because we, we do so get stuck on the wrong question sometimes. So the MCI model, correct me if I'm wrong, is almost it's, its main purpose is to remind us that implementation doesn't come first. Just because we've got an idea, just because someone who's a powerful influencer or a persuader has come up with something that sounds right, we don't rush straight to implementation. We need to think it through. We need to go through the motivation and clarification stage to make sure we're asking and answering the right question and that we've absolutely clarified what is the proposal? What are the steps that we're going to take? Have I got that nailed, Brian? Is that what it's about? 
Yeah, one hundred percent. And you've got to get inside their heads because, and so the way I, I say to people to use it. So when you're going in to influence a decision, and particularly one you're not comfortable with, just ask yourself: Have they gone straight to implementation? It only takes a second. Mm. Yeah. You know. Have they clarified? What process have they been through to clarify? Mm. They've done all the clarifying and they're still choosing this option. Let's talk about motivation and let's dig deeper about what's behind yeah. it. But That's often, often they, it's very obvious they've gone straight to implementation. They don't even have to do CNM because <laughs> that's what they've yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, that's very revealing. Again, sometimes the simplest models, it's a three-word model, are just the best because it helps us to put labels and, and words around what we observe and what we know is happening and helps us to organize those thoughts. Now, look, Brian, we've only got a couple of minutes to go, but I really want to touch on these push and pull, I think, is it strategies that you you talked about in your book? Because again, they're, they're just so simple and, it, and just the adjectives that you use there to describe them helps me understand some of the strategies that I use when I'm doing some work around the place. So just briefly explain those push and pulls to us. Yes. So these are the principles of persuasion that Robert Caldini introduced in his in his book, Influence. And what I did is I took his six principles of persuasion and changed them into what I would call the modern vernacular since it's 1980s language. And um, I just- Jazz them I up just, a bit. Yeah, exactly. Jazz them up a bit, and then I <laughs> he doesn't uh, he doesn't put them on any kind of scale as to what's most effective and least effective. He just describes so, them. Yeah, and so I've renamed them, and I I talk about it at the very bottom of the rung, but absolutely all of these are very effective persuasion skills, the very uh, or persuasion tools. The very bottom is user authority. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it'll get the job done. I'm the boss. Yep. However. You don't expect people to love you afterwards, yeah, um, yeah. and and want to be listening to the next time you come to to give your advice. The next one, one rung above, is scarcity. Yes, diamonds are scarce. The sale's going to end at five o'clock. I better grab it now. So yeah, yeah. if you can make your advice scarce in some way, mm-hmm. or the solution that you're offering scarce, or even in your some time, way, yes, yep, yeah, then people are more likely to to grab that while it's yeah. there. And take yeah. it on board. But again, we all know what it's like. We bought the thing at four minutes to five, and yeah. then we walk out of the shop and wonder, wonder if I would have got it cheaper somewhere tomorrow. Buyer's remorse. <laughs> Buyer's remorse. The next one is credibility. Um, so, so Caldini talks about social proof, and you know, other people uh, are wearing those clothes or or buying that that brand. Therefore, it must be the go. I must have it too. So in terms of advising, I think sometimes we'll take someone's advice because they're seen as credible. They've got the, the, the PhD or, the, or whatever, or their ex-McKinsey or whatever it yeah. is. So people go, oh, That's we right. better listen to them. Yeah. But again, there's that sense of I'm doing it not because I want to, but yeah. because others are. And then yeah. the, So now we move from what I – they were all push strategies, and now we move into the pull strategies. These are the real good ones. Reciprocity. Give someone a gift, and they feel like you they owe you. And that's yeah. definitely an Aussie thing. Yeah. Then there's flexibility. And again, this was a more about the adaptability thing I was talking about. It's coming with options, not imposing your advice on them, saying, here are the pros and cons of three different options I've come up with, and I'd really like to help you walk through them. And then the highest one. Now, Caldini talks about likability. Make yourself likable. It's like the how to win Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yes. Likability is very big. I take it a step further. I say, make yourself desirable. That means be likable and make sure what you've got is lovable. 
because if they right. like you and they love what you've got, you're desirable and they will buy. Brian Whitefield, that is a beautiful way to end. If they like you and they like what you've got, you're desirable and they'll buy. A very nice, positive way to end. Thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. All the best. And that was Brian Whitefield, the power of persuasion, the ability to influence the status of trusted advisor. There's some powerful concepts that will help all of us achieve our professional and, dare I say, personal goals. Brian talks us through his Pathfinder model, a template for building trust and credibility in our pursuit of persuasion. He talked us through a decision model, helping us understand how decisions should be made allowing us to pick apart the flaws in an existing decision-making process. And he broke down the techniques of persuasion into two categories, push the ugly, authoritative way and pull the dynamic, intelligent way of the true influencer. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Brian on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.